R&D action from down under a select committee in the Australian Senate focused on fintech released a report in May urging their government to provide more federal support for technology sectors, specifically those who work primarily in software. This select committee on financial and regulatory technology led by Liberal Party Senator Andrew Bragg has made 23 recommendations to accomplish this. Among these suggestions is the idea that there ought to be a separate tax incentive just for software, for which it is currently difficult to claim credits. On today's episode of The Fiona Show, R&D Tax Credit will be breaking down these recommendations, and along the way, we'll consider whether or not the United States should follow suit. Leading our discussion, I'm going to hand things off to manager of R&D Tax Credit here at Cross Border, Lydia Clowney. Take it away, Lydia. Hi, Matt. Thank you so much. I'm thrilled to be here today. I'm talking with Professor Beth Webster of Australia's Swinburne University of Technology. Professor Webster, thank you so much for joining us. Do you you think you could start maybe by just giving us a a little bit of background on yourself and your experience with research and development? Thanks very much, Lydia. It's a pleasure to be talking to you. So I'm an innovation economist, and one of the things we do down here at Swinburne is we do empirical studies of research and innovation in businesses. In particular, we use a lot of very detailed firm-level data to find out what causes businesses to perform well or not perform well, and we focus in on R&D, innovation, patenting, collaboration with businesses generally. So in particular, we've got access to a database which has got 20 million records in it and it's got it's backed up by tax data, survey data, other administrative data. It's a big linked firm data set. So what it means is, and, and a lot of countries around the world are now using these very big and they're confidential databases to get empirical estimates of different policy options or just to understand how the economy works we use the one for Australia. How interesting. Well, I'd love to start if we could just go back over Australia's R&D tax incentives. Historically, they're some of the most generous in the world. What kinds of credits are offered currently? So most countries in the world have what is called a a special tax treatment for R&D. And that's basically to encourage firms to do more R&D than they would otherwise do if they didn't get the tax incentive. And the rationale here is that it's ultimately the household or the consumer who benefits from R&D because you've got new and better products. So governments should encourage it. Now, In Australia, we have most of the government support for R&D comes through the tax system and it's an entitlement scheme, which means that anyone who ticks the boxes on the, on the conditions gets the money. Other countries have a R&D tax incentive scheme as well, but Often it's not as generous and the reason for that is because they often support R&D through other more direct means. So in America, your R&D tax credit scheme might not be as generous, but your direct support for R&D through DARPA, the Department of Defence, Department of Energy, Department of Health is much more generous than here. So, you know, it's a policy choice as to whether you want to put your support for R&D through the tax system and it's an entitlement scheme or you want to put it through what I call direct support where the money 
goes directly to particular missions that the government might have. And the, the missions might be renewable energy. It might be improving some sort of device in the defence industry, or it might be improving something through space or security. So they're the other sorts of support for R&D. So in Australia, going back to what we do here, we have a, a system whereby for every dollar that a company spends on R&D, they can reduce their taxable income by around about a dollar forty. So that's on top of the fact that R&D in most countries is already expensed, which means it's not treated as an asset. It's just treated as an expense in the accounting system. So R&D gets a pretty generous treatment around the world. In Australia, so you can get 40 cents back. But in addition, we have something which is called a R&D tax credit scheme. And that basically means that if you're not paying income tax or company tax at all, because you're a startup and you haven't got any sales yet, the government will, and you're doing R&D, the government will give you money. It's not they they just reduce your tax bill, they actually give you money back and that's called a tax credit. And in Australia, that applies to small and medium-sized firms. Hi, I'm Matthew DeMello, and you may know me as the host of the Fiona Show Cross-Border Solutions Weekly Transfer Pricing Podcast. And while I love to discuss transfer pricing, this podcast isn't the only place you can hear me doing it. Cross-Border Solutions recently relaunched Transfer Pricing University, a live webinar series where you can learn about modern-day transfer pricing, everything from methodologies to comparables to preparing documentation to meet country-specific regulations. Good stuff, I know. Chief Economist Mimi Song leads the sessions. I just ask the occasional obvious question. Since our program is NASBA certified, you can earn one CPE credit for joining each session. Pretty sweet. So what are you waiting for? Join us for Transfer Pricing University Weekly. Classes are free, so now you really have no reason to miss it. Sign up at xbs.ai slash tpu. Okay, so that's the lay of the land for Australian R&D now. Recently, the select committee, led by Senator Bragg, made some recommendations to the government. Where do the R&D recommendations come in with regards to this list of amendments? So the key recommendation is that they want a special scheme, like an extra special support for R&D and software. Now, you know, usually those Senate reports come up through a lot of lobbying from industry at Parliament, and then the you know, they form a committee and then they look into it. I'm not clear exactly how much empirical evidence he's looked at, but often they'll go around and do a lot of interviews and take submissions from the public and then form, form an opinion based on, on their best guess, basically. But we've done some research here at Swinburne, which would shed light on that question and two issues. First of all, remember I said the reason they give extra support for R&D is because deductively or logically, they know that the the people who benefit from R&D done maybe 10, 20, 15, 100 years ago is you and me. It's, it's the household of the consumer. We're the ones who benefit from all the vaccines, all the new forms of energy, you know, clean water, fantastic entertainment, all the things that come from discovery and invention. We're the ones who ultimately benefit. In the short term, businesses who invent it benefit and they get a bit of extra profits. And then as their competitors see what they're doing, they copy them, they get a bit of extra profits and then gradually the whole, the great idea diffuses out into the, the whole of industry. And 
price is full and it's the consumers, the you and me, that benefit from R&D in the past. So that's the reason governments around the world support it. But in addition, people like me who are economists have gone out and tried to empirically test whether, in fact, that supposition is true because that's just a deductive idea and some deductive ideas obviously don't stand up empirically. And there's been probably about 200 studies around the world using very detailed data and they find that, yes, indeed, that story is true and they can see that when one company does R&D, they can see not only does it increase their profits in the short term, meaning that the invention was profitable, it was it was realisable, it, it actually did improve their products, but they can see it ripple through the economy, through the other parts of their industry and finally to the consumer. So let's say there's maybe 200 studies around the world. A lot of those are in America that, that's measured this. So we're pretty confident that R&D does have this amazing effect first on industry and then on the householder. But what we've done here at Swinburne, I think it's probably, I don't know if anyone else in the world's done this, is we've basically said, well, not all R&D is equal. You wouldn't expect all R&D to have the same effect on ultimately consumers. So you've got R&D in basic science, R&D in agriculture, R&D medical engineering, ICT education, law R&D. So is there any reason why you'd expect them to have the same effect on consumer welfare or company profits in the short term? So what we've done is we've gone out and we've done some what's called economic modelling and econometric estimates and we've gone out and said, well, okay, we know what type of R&D businesses are doing. Let's look at the rate of return to society from that R&D. And what we actually found is that the R&D done in the area of information, communication, technology and computer science actually has the highest rate of return to society. So, in fact, if you wanted to support R&D, you would give more support to R&D in this area of ICT and software. So there is a, is an empirical rationale for giving greater support. And we find that, that lower areas of return to R&D in industrial technologies, agriculture and the environment and basic sciences appear to have lower returns. But definitely, and this is a very strong empirical finding, we found that there is an empirical rationale for giving greater support to software. Now, the second thing that the Bragg report recommended was giving a preference to startups. So they said, okay, let's, let's give an extra boost to software, which we would give a tick to. But in addition, they're saying, okay, we're going to limit it to new young firms. Most young firms or new firms are small. So basically they're saying, okay, just let's limit it to these guys. And, and we would actually have a bit of trouble with that because to us, that sounds like industry welfare. And it's a very common mistake, I think, that policymakers make when they say, oh, we've got to have a special scheme for SMEs, they're, they're poor little things, it's sort of like an, an mm-hmm. underprivileged child at school, you know, let's give them extra support. Well, you know, governments aren't in the business of supporting profits. They only give support, in the, in, especially in the form of, of tax relief, because it has a great effect on the economy, because it has a ripple-down effect on to people like you and me. And there's no evidence to show that young firms or new firms or startups, however much we love them and we think they're cute, that they have a better effect on the economy or generate more jobs or lead to better innovations than large firms. So we would say, okay, if you do want to give a special support for software, 
look at which firms produce the best benefit. And that's an empirical matter. And there's no logical reason why small firms or young firms or startups produce the best inventions. Now, I know anecdotally people say, oh, look at Apple, look at Uber, look at Atlassian, look at all those little startups that occurred some decades ago and, and grew from nothing to something wonderful or Netflix. But there's also a lot of invention, fantastic invention going on in large companies as well. So I think that's an empirical issue and I have seen no empirical estimates to suggest that startups or young firms outperform big firms in that regard. I wonder if it's almost governments trying to avoid what they might consider to be bad PR. Maybe they think that the layperson might hear about tax credits being given to large companies and think, and maybe think that that's corporate welfare, that that large company doesn't deserve, not thinking about the empirical data that you have, that, that the university has put together that suggests that in fact, it's really kind of the opposite. Yeah, that's, that's kind of a quandary. I think you're absolutely right. I think there is a political appetite out there or the the electorates seem to think that supporting SMEs is a great thing to do. And they often trot out the statistic that shows that, oh, 95 or 96 or 97% of businesses in our economy, this is true of every economy in the world, is an SME, a small business or small, medium-sized business. But yes, there are a lot of them because they're tiny. And usually if you look at the economy, the small, medium-sized businesses are just probably on par with large businesses in terms of employment and valuated in the economy. So they're not more important. They're just, they're just more CEOs, I guess, if you like to put it that way. So look, there is, you know, people do think of large firms being, you know, the big gorillas, greedy, stomping on the little guy. And yes, that, you know, anecdotally, we, we do have a lot of anecdotes for that, but that is competition policy should be trying to stamp that out. And you'll probably be aware of there's been a few big trust cases in America where with IBM, with Netscape and, and Microsoft, where they've tried to stop big businesses acting in a predatory way towards small startups trying to get into the industry. That is a concern and that's where you support the small, medium-sized businesses in that area of anti-monopoly, anti-competition sort of policies. You don't necessarily do it in the R&D area because, look, you know, so much fantastic work is done in the area of vaccines, as we've seen, by large companies. And Penicillin, you know, most of the work was done by about 20 to 30 big pharmaceutical companies in America during World War II. So big companies are, I mean, where would we be without penicillin? Big companies are really, really important for some inventions. So I think also with small and medium-sized firms, there is a perception that in terms of what's called rent-seeking, which is basically people lobbying the government for favours for their particular business or their particular industry, people have the perception that big businesses lobby better and get more benefits or, or special treatment because they've been able to put more resources into lobbying. But I think, well, that's really up to the government to stop that. I mean, they, they can stop lobbyists. They can they can make it much more transparent. They can open any lobbying work to the public for scrutiny, in particular to academics, if they really want to stop that. And if, if that's going on, probably that's the best way to help SMEs in general, not just over tax and R&D in general. But I can't see given, you know, we, we know there's many anecdotes about large firms 
inventing amazing things that have really underpinned our standard of living as small firms. And so I can't see there's any reason to give small firms a special tax treatment. Absolutely. And you talked about vaccines and sort of the historical example of penicillin, but I'm even thinking more recently with COVID and who was developing the vaccines that are actually getting into arms right now. It is those big businesses and certainly would want to be sure that the development happening at those, those big businesses is also being rewarded by our governments. That's right. You know, in the current climate, those big businesses did get special support from the government for the obvious reason they wanted to get the vaccines through very quickly. But in normal times, I don't think they necessarily do. Certainly the institutes of National Institute of Health in America possibly does, but I don't think that's necessarily the case that they always support big businesses in during non-pandemic times as much. Sure. Note to multinational companies everywhere, if you think the coronavirus has affected your bottom line, take a look at how it's devastated the economies of governments around the world. And where do you think tax authorities will look to make up for all that lost revenue? That's right, your transfer pricing. You can't afford to be non-compliant, but then you probably can't afford to pay for an overpriced consultant who bills by the hour either. Oops, sorry, Big Four. We've got the answer. Cross-border solutions, AI-powered transfer pricing software keeps you in compliance by preparing accurate, hyper-localized reports that protect you from transfer pricing audits, penalties, and adjustments. And our technology is available for one flat fee, a fraction of what you'd pay a big-name consultant. Again, apologies, Big Four. Stay in compliance and on budget with cross-border solutions, AI-driven transfer pricing software. It's no wonder we're the global leader in AI-driven tax solutions. There we go again. I'm so sorry, Big... You know what? Wait, who am I kidding? Sign up for a free demo of cross-border solutions transfer pricing technology today at xbs.ai slash tp. That's xbs.ai slash tp. To, to software. I know it sounds like there's a pretty wide support within the government for these incentives. I imagine that there's pretty wide support within the business community as well. Do you know, what are people saying on the ground about the current scheme or about the potential changes? Look, there hasn't been much, it hasn't been aired publicly a lot. It's, you know, usually you'd get debates like this out in the financial press and I haven't actually seen a lot coming out about it. And you know, I, I don't particularly get emails from the software industry group. I'm sure there would be a bit of conversation going on there. But it, it certainly hasn't come out in our financial press that I've seen in a big way. <laughs> sure, sure. No, fair enough. Well, I wonder if we might be able to talk a little bit about uh, the comparison between the credit in Australia and the credit in the US. Would you say that it's just as hard to claim a software credit for a U.S. startup as it would be for, for an Australian? In Australia, the tax concessions and the tax credits apply to any company that's onshore and it can be foreign-owned. Uh, this is in Australia. It can be foreign-owned mm-hmm. or domestically owned. And the reason there is that governments around the world want to encourage, A, the activity, which is usually, well, I say it's usually where you are physically, but these days it doesn't really have to be because things can, especially software, the people work on software in many different geographic areas. But also the reason they give the credit out 
whether it's a domestic or a foreign firm, is because we know diffusion happens. Diffusion, which by that I mean copying, imitation, licensing, outsourcing, usually happens in geographically proximate businesses. So if, say, we have Toyota, which is a Japanese company located here in Australia, it does a whole lot of software research and development, the immediate beneficiaries will often be Australian businesses or businesses in Australia employing Australians creating value-added, maybe creating exports. But basically because new things, it's it's very hard to get businesses to adopt new things and it's a very incremental, it's a very risky process and being physically close, talking to the people who have done it and finding out the, the nuances and the, and the good oil and having the trust about, your friend who's trying to sell you this something has tried it and, and you know them, you know them, they're a good person. Being physically proximate really, really helps for what they call diffusion or the spread of new ideas and created through R&D. And, and again, we know that empirically geography matters. So the reason governments around the world would give a tax concession or a tax credit to companies, regardless of whether they're foreign-owned, regardless of whether they're maybe a big multinational or not, is because we've been able to empirically track the fact that being in the same location matters for the spread of that invention to other businesses. And that's where you get productivity growth. If an invention is only used by the company that invents it, you're not going to see any effect on gross domestic product or production or, or national well-being. It only occurs when, when it's spread to other businesses and other industries and geography matters here. Sure. So it's one company doing really interesting work ends up being a catalyst for all the companies around them doing something that might be similar or less similar. I I guess I I think of Silicon Valley as being an example of that, of this kind of bubbling up of of new ideas and and some of that cross-pollination really, really pushing that kind of innovation forward. I think a lot of it's about informal means of communication. You know, I think that occurs in all those areas where you have conglomerations of innovation like Silicon Valley, you know, the Nagoya district in Japan or the big industrial valley that goes from Denmark down to northern Italy through Germany. And there's many others around the globe where they're known for being just hot houses of innovation in particular technologies or particular industries. And partly it occurs because you get a concentration of, of a big labour market of people who know those technologies and therefore a, a business that works in that area can draw on a very deep and rich set of skills. But it also occurs because people talk to each other informally, you know, down the cafe, down the pub, when they're picking up their kids from school, they have friends, have friends, have friends and, and colleagues. And that's the way trusted information flows. It's not just through the, if it was just flowing through the internet or through publications in trade magazines or academic journals, then the whole world would be on a level playing field and there'd be no concentrations in Silicon Valley or the parts of Europe and Japan and, and, and elsewhere in Australia. But we know that businesses do concentrate and they concentrate for a reason. And it's that informal communication that gives you the edge over somebody a long way away who's just reading what's on the internet or coming out in official publications. I was wondering if there was an example, a similar example to that kind of rich activity within research and development in Australia, like the the Silicon Valley example. Yep. Okay. So the one that's 
probably springs to mind is the mining industry. So Australia is a major mining producer and exporter. And it, the history goes back 100 years, as is common in a lot of these industries. And the research is clustered in certain cities that are near in a, <laughs> near in a sort of funny way to the mines, because the mines might be thousands and thousands of miles away from the capital cities. But what you've got is you've got a very rich tapestry of people doing R&D, education and training institutions, people doing innovation, governments and stock markets who know and support the industry. And that's what makes the industry efficient. So it's not just R&D on its own. When you want to, if you're in a mining company in Australia and you want to raise money to do a new invention or a new process or something else, you can go to the stock market and the stock market can read your perspective and understands it. And you've got a whole lot of investors who know and understand what you're doing and therefore have the confidence to put money in. Whereas if you, you're a high-tech business in Australia, that might not be true at all. A high-tech business in Australia might want to go to Silicon Valley to try and raise money to do invention and R&D because that's where you find the investors and the community and the skilled labour and the education institutions and the research institutes that will support and say, yes, that's a good idea. We know it's a good idea. We know there's a market there. We know it's feasible and it's going to be cost-effective. In Australia, that applies in mining. So we have, uh, obviously, we have a lot of natural advantages. We have the, the dirt in the ground that suitable minerals, bauxite, nine oil primarily. But we also have that rich industry that makes the mining industry very, very efficient. So we now have digital mines. So, you know, you have self-driving trucks and you have a very, very small amount of people digging up a very, very lot of iron ore and uh, copper and, and bauxite and minerals like that. And, and that's because the whole industry has been efficient. It's not just the R&D and the R&D tax concessions, but it's the whole, as I said, panoply of services surrounding that industry that make it efficient. And I imagine that's true for cars in Japan, for chemicals in Germany and for ICT in Silicon Valley as well. And and the biotech industry, obviously, around Boston and in, in California is very efficient too. I think that's such a great point because when we talk about these concepts, sometimes we can get kind of tunnel vision. We say, oh, this is a mining company. This is a software company. This is a car building company. But it's never that simple. And these companies are all doing all sorts of different kinds of development. And clearly, like you say, the mining company also has some software development, I imagine, if the Australian government ends up confining a, a software credit to startups, they'd be cutting off that, that benefit for some of their best companies. I, I wonder, is that is that something that you would see too? Is that one of the reasons why you might recommend that a credit or an incentive not be limited to certain companies in that manner? Absolutely. So the, the mining industry and a, and a lot of industries now, they call in the industry sense, I call them dark firms, dark industry, because they don't turn the lights on. There's no one on the shop floor. It's so highly automated. You've got somebody up in the control panel running it. In our mines, we have somebody sitting in Perth who might be two, 3,000 miles away from the trucks and the diggers that they are controlling in their little office because it's all automated. And they've obviously done a, a lot of R&D in software to get to that stage. And it's not just about cost reduction. It's also about safety. So, so we have 
some of those trucks which are the size of houses driven by satellite so they're not they don't have people in them so if there's an accident no one gets hurt we just lose a truck I guess you know it, it's an empirical question who who does the most valuable inventions and I think for every anecdote you have about small gazelles those startups that have the great idea in their garage and they suddenly overnight turn into amazing success you have a lot of hidden champions a lot of hidden inventions in the large company sector they don't shout about it because they don't need to well we've been talking around this I think probably the whole episode but I love it if we could just kind of state it explicitly R&D incentives for software seem pretty vital today, especially. Why is now the right time to enhance some of these incentives for software R&D in particular? So they talk about the digital technologies, which is really a lot of software, as being the fourth industrial revolution. And the second one was electricity. So we can all see it's an enabling technology. It's, it's amazingly handy electricity and you can see how it's really permeated through every business, every household. You know, you only have to have a blackout for a few days to realise how much it affects your life. And they're talking about digital technologies being this fourth industrial revolution. It's a, basically an enabling or a general purpose technology. And if that's the case, then it is special. It's not just like subsidising another engineering device or another another widget or another cultivar to plant in the ground. It's it's something that will affect almost every industry, and I believe it is affecting almost every industry, right through from services, from aged care, personal care, right through to very high-tech stuff, cyber security or, or rockets to the moon or whatever. So if it is a truly enabling technology, then there is a reason to say it's just not like another engineering industrial widget. It's special. We want to encourage more of it not just in terms of a standard of living and the cost of material goods and services, but it's also a safety issue. It can also be something that contributes to uh, reduced violence and other sorts of improved health, other sorts of non-material benefits. If we believe it's got that potential, then yes, there is a case for saying software should have special treatment or digital technology is probably the best way of putting it. I, I couldn't agree more. Professor Webster, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been a delight to talk with you and to learn more about Australia and about the credits there and really just about everything that's going on with that kind of high technology. So thank you so much. Pleasure. Thank you, Lydia. A global pandemic, a grim economic forecast, feeling the squeeze, an R&D tax credit can help lower your burn. If you qualify, the IRS and some state governments will give you a tax credit equal to 10% of your company's spend on development activities. You can even take the credit against payroll taxes if you're in the red. All you have to do is claim it. So what's stopping you? If an expensive application process is turning you off, sorry, now you really have no excuse. Cross-Border Solutions AI-driven R&D tax credit software eliminates the need for pricey consultants and allows you to apply for R&D credits all over the world for one low fee. After all, why should you have to spend your whole R&D tax credit on getting your R&D tax credit? It's your money. Keep more of it with Cross-Border Solutions, the global leader in AI-driven tax solutions. Request a demo today. Visit xbs.ai slash rd. That's xbs.ai slash rd.
We'd like to thank our guest, Professor Webster, and our own Lydia Clowney here at Cross Border, along with our audience at home for joining us. Don't forget to check out the entire suite of Cross Border Solutions tax podcasts on Apple Podcasts and Spotify today. This podcast was hosted by Matthew DeMello. Andrew O'Donnell is our audio producer. Stephen Markow is our associate producer and writes our scripts. We'll catch everyone next time. Thank you.